This is Edgar from Brooklyn. <clears throat> Edgar from Brooklyn. Yes, we make a distinction in New York. It's Manhattan, Brooklyn, never Queens. I, I don't do Queens. It's out of my world. Anyway, hello everyone. I'm Edgar Alcoholic. And um, I'm kind of, uh, it's kind of interesting that I'm speaking to this meeting because it's kind of new to me. I've been, um, my sober date is Christmas Eve, 1971. And uh, I walked into AA. No, no, I didn't walk into AA. I'll, I'll explain later. So I'm the second oldest of nine children. And in those days, the uh, Irish Kennedys ruled all the Catholic people in that world. So all of us were having eight to 13 kids, you know, just like the Kennedys. And especially upper middle class Catholics, which I'm part of. And um, I have five sisters and three brothers. Yeah. Now, my oldest brother, the reason I'm going to tell you this is because it set the dynamic up for my drinking and my sexual behavior and my uh, the depression, all the things that were a backdrop to my drinking. So my oldest brother was three years old in, during the Second World War, and I was seven months old. And uh, we lived in a beautiful Methodist camp down because dad was a doctor and a captain. And they, it was the only way they could get housing for the uh, soldiers at the time of the Second World War. So I was born in 1944. By the time, what, November rolled around, December, my oldest brother got away from parents and walked across a country road in Pennsylvania and went to a grassy knoll overlooking a beautiful country pond. And he and another little boy decided to explore the pond. Little did they know that on the other side of the pond was a dam, which the water was still running. And had the water not been running, they would have made it across. But instead, they fell face first into the snowy ice. And I don't think they drowned. I think they froze to death. They were three years old. It was a multiple death. Nine days before Christmas. I was seven months. And the reason I go through this semi-depressing was it did something. It, it is a, between lawyers and psychologists, you know, when you have a child's death in a family, it can create a permanent split in the parents. So mom uh, really was hurt. Dad attacked her constantly for not watching his children properly. I guess that's what happened. I'm improvising a little, but they fought all the time, all the time. He made, uh, she had seven more children. Yeah. Twins, Judy, Phyllis, Nancy, Tommy, Jane, all of us. And uh, and it was horrible. 
because I kept being shoved aside from my mother. And it also created a very, very not so healthy bond with my mom because I was around. Also, my mother and I share a common talent, which created an intense bond between us. She is a singer and I'm a composer. And, uh, we both, we had this, we had this music between us. And, um, anyway, that's later. So my mom buried Philip put a dress on and my dad got drunk and puked on her dress before the funeral. And that created a resentment in her life that went on for 65 years. They stayed married, but she was filled with rage. She wasn't Catholic. She was a Baptist girl from the hills of Pennsylvania, Southern Baptist. And uh, as an aside, I never heard my mother ever say God. They don't say God, those people. They say my maker. <laughs> That's their that euphemism for God. And she was a tough ass chick. She um, never went to college. She was a high school graduate. And uh, my dad was an Ivy League graduate from University of Pennsylvania Medical School. We married a beautiful woman. My mother's gorgeous. Black eye. She was a Welsh woman. She was Welsh and uh, German. Her mother, grandmother came from uh, um, Hanover, Germany. Anyway, there I was in a huge growing family with a super angry mom and a uh, brilliant eye surgeon dad and uh it was just it was misery for me really really hard so as life went on uh i was seven months old when she buried philip and uh she was in my arm i was in her arms because a newspaper article of my sister esther the youngest found talking about this death and my dad and my mother and that while years and years later so i go through all this because somewhere when i was six years old seven maybe uh my mother bought me a toy xylophone and i started to compose on it and she said "Ooh, what do we have here and uh i was a um really in love with music, but I never wanted to perform. I wanted to write. I just didn't know how to say that. So anyway, um, she bought me a concert grand piano and took me to one of the greatest musicians in Pittsburgh. I'm from Pittsburgh. My dad was a mill doctor before he started private practice as an eye doctor. And he, um, oh, it, it was hard. And he was a closet drinker and he really controlled himself. I mean, he, he could not be an eye surgeon and be drunk all the time. You can't do that. So here I was sitting behind a grand piano with seven children running around the house, fighting and screaming and yelling. 
and um, it was awful. Periodically, my mother would go into a rage at my dad's drinking, and she would beat me. She took a rage out on me with my, my, my her dad, her husband. I became the brunt of her rage. My job was to keep her angry and not depressed. That was my job in the family. Every family has roles, especially big families, that they play. There's the outside child. There's a lightning rod child. There's the good child. I was the lightning rod child. That's when mom got angry. She beat. The, she would take me downstairs and take my clothes off, and she would beat me with a leather belt until I couldn't stand up. And um, so life went on. I, I I studied hard with a great musician. He was also an alcoholic, and he'd scream and yell. I only knew about things by being yelled at. And my mother smoked constantly. My dad smoked constantly. My my. Memories of my mother are, are nicotine-filled hands, and she never, ever was without a cigarette, constantly, morning, noon, and night. Morning, noon, and night. Same with my dad. Both of them died of emphysema in their late age, in their 70, late 70s. So anyway, and we went forward, and I played, and I pounded the piano, and pounded the piano. I, I was trying to write. I was trying to get that music out. And I, I couldn't do it. Nobody would teach me. I, I didn't want to play Bach and Ravel and Mozart. And I did all those things. My teacher was famous. His brother taught at Juilliard, Beveridge Webster. He recorded all the Stravinsky uh, ballets. And he, both of them studied in the Sorbonne and were students of Cassetta Sir, who was a personal friend of Ravel. So all my classical training is through the French. And I love the French sound. That's my sound. So anyway, um, Derek, are you talking to me? What is he doing? He's driving me nuts. Uh, so he, um, I um, was uh, in love with the piano, but not in love with performing. So anyway, I went and I went and I went, and I got into Carnegie Mellon, or those days, Carnegie Tech, where Warhol was. And uh, I got thrown out because they told me I had no talent. I was so filled with anxiety and problems that I couldn't... Um, I couldn't hear. And that started me on a 12-year journey into alcoholism, illegal behavior, and I, I stopped playing the piano. It was awful. Uh, I bottomed out in Iowa, where I was at the writer's workshop, and I was there with Kurt Vonnegut's daughter. And uh, I, I was hanging around some great people, but I wasn't playing my music. But I was doing some kind of improvisation. So I wasn't far from music, but it was out of control. It was kind of wild and crazy. So finally, uh, they asked me to leave. I went here to Pittsburgh. No, this was before Pittsburgh. I went to Carnegie Mellon, and I left because they said at a time. I went to Iowa. Then I came back to Pittsburgh, and my mom and dad took me in with my wife, my, my little cat, and I stayed there for a number of months, 
looking for work and it was horrible. I am not a person for Pittsburgh. I couldn't stand it. Anyway, one day around, I don't know when, late, late in the fall maybe, there was a Hertz rental truck in the driveway, which was unusual. And uh, I, I came home and Janet said, Mommy wants to talk to you. So I stood there and she came up to me. She had $100 in her hand. And she said, get in that road at Hertz truck. Here's $100. Take your wife and everything you have in the basement and get out and don't come back. New York is the only town for you. So here's Janet and I. We drove all the way to Manhattan, not knowing a soul. If you know anything about Manhattan, we stayed in a small hotel in Yorkville, which was basically a whorehouse where Dominic Matrix beat, well, you know, did lots of strange things to businessmen. And Janet said the classic line, this is New York. So classic. She's a New England wasp and very much like the, the Irish Brahmins that live there. They're all the same kind of people. Very stuffy, very proper, lots of dignity. I decided I would never marry an Italian. I'm half Italian and half Bush. I only married Northern Europeans, which have their own problems. So here I am in New York, late at night, with a, no place to stay except this hotel room. And I decided to look for an apartment. And I'm walking down Lexington, Lexington or Third. But would you know, I found a realtor and, and it was down, a lot of real estate offices were in the basement of Brownstones. And I got into a brownstone and there was a almost seven foot Jamaican, no hair. He was the guy that collected the rent. And he um, threw keys at me. He said, here, I just got the apartment. It's in Gramercy Park. Now, if you know anything about Manhattan, Gramercy Park is over the top beautiful. And I had a key to the park. And I said, okay, and I went down, I didn't even see it. I took it and I, I, I went for it. I took the keys, I went down to Gramercy Park, and would you know, it was a tiny little one bedroom. I paid $238 a month for that apartment. Can you believe that shit? And there we were, in a little five-story elevated and then tucked in a bunch of wealthy, big, rich people at Gramercy Park, key to the park, and you know who was a neighbor? Was the Wicked Witch of the West, the Maxwell House lady. She'd walk around them, everybody would applaud. It was a great neighborhood. Great neighborhood. So that started me. I got there, I must have been 25. I was, Janet went to work at NYU. She ran the neurological research labs at NYU with a degree in French and Russian. Not bad, huh? Very smart girl. And I proceeded to be an artist, ha ha, <laughs> which means I ran around Manhattan doing all kinds of obnoxious things. And I was not a fun person. I drank, I started to blackout. I was a periodic. I got hired by, uh, I won't say, some criminal activities. I ran an antique store in the village that was involved with some criminal activities. And that's where I worked. And I was getting sicker and sicker. I smoked. 
constantly. When I was a child, I was run over by a drunken driver when I was five years old, and he took me on the end of his car for 250 feet, and I sat in a, hotel, a hospital for three months, three operations, 300 penicillin shots, and my ribs pierced my right lung, and I had bronchiectasis. So it was smart not to smoke. So here I am at 26, 25, getting up in the morning, coughing up black phlegm, and smoking and running this antique store, bogus operation, coughing. So by the time late fall arrived, I started to work. I, I found myself doing artistic things. And I began to put together a documentary with a Dominican filmmaker and on uh, heroin addiction in the Bronx. And um, it was incredible. If you know anything about the Bronx, which I doubt you do, the Bronx, the South Bronx, is was a zoo. It was no man's land. No man's land. What, what do you call it? Uh, Section 8 housing. A lot of Puerto Rican immigrants. It was tough. Tough, tough, tough. One of the toughest streets was Simpson. Simpson Street and Hoe Avenue which was, uh, there was a television show based on it. I'm t I can't impress upon anybody in this room more strongly how disastrous a neighborhood that was. That it was the worst of the worst. Constant screaming, yelling, mothers out on the street with children, whoever, drug dealers. And this particular Dominican decided to do a dog documentary on heroin addiction for child addicts. Their job was to run heroin into Manhattan for the rich people. Okay, you got they were mules. And in the course of many of them became addicts. But they were fabulous, warm, loving people. And there I was running around this facility with the director making movies. And every once in a while, it's about a week, I stayed there for about a week, every once in a while, they would have group therapy, you know? And all of a sudden, the conversation wrecked me. I would start to cry. And it was, what, what's going on here? Well, you know, like, I couldn't hold back the tears. The, the, the sense of relating to these kids was profound. Most came from the, the housing projects, broken homes. I'm telling you, it was, it was what happened with the fentanyl generation today. So we went back to Manhattan. We finished it. I still have about, by the way, it's called My Voice, Our Voices. I still have it. But after every graduating class from the facility, they would all stand around each other and sing this Bill Withers song or ain't no ain't no something when she's gone oh and everybody would cry and say goodbye and and we interviewed the PR guy and he said most will be back we go back to the projects must be back and in those days she took the six train into Manhattan it was a deep resting monstrous ride for me 
Nothing's worse in the world than being in New York in February. If you don't have a job in February, you're in, you're in, you're shit out of luck. Overcast, long train ride back to New York. And my Dominican, uh, Dominic, uh, what do you call it, uh, director finished the art documentary. But while I was there, I met one of the most famous Spanish poet, Puerto Rican and Mexican poets in New York City. He became the poet Larry out of Queens. He was a student of one of, of uh, who's that? Irish? It was American Irish play, uh, poet. Took him under his wings. The guy lived on 110th Street, which is called El Barrio, which is a Spanish neighborhood. In those days, it was a disaster. His mother was a, uh, a, a witch, and Frank Lima was a fabulous poet. Fabulous. I never met a man who wrote more beautiful and sensitive poetry about women than he did. Like Neruda, he was. Since, and we, we became the best friends. Best friends. I went ahead. Now we're getting close to Christmas. Life is dull. I started to hang out with uh, Tony Williams' road manager, who was a monstrously boring alcoholic. And nothing's worse than to be a drunk and stagnant. No music. I hadn't played a piano and touched music in 12 years. 12 years. Finally, I, I was at wit's end. I was at wit's end. I started to run an antique store because I know how to strip furniture for a wonderful Jewish man who was married to a wonderful Danish girl big-breasted mama cast kind of lady, just a welcoming, loving woman. I could do no wrong for these people. They just love me. And I always used to say in AA, nothing, nothing destroys an alcoholic any faster than love. And that brings us to our knees. And he took care of me, gave me work to do and everything. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it because he was so kind. Christmas Eve, 1971, I called up the phone company directory. Can you believe this, <laughs> Mr. Mark? I called up the directory and I said, how do I get to an AA meeting? They 12-stepped me and they, they were trained to 12-step alcoholics. And they sent me to TGIFNS, which is a Grace Church on 21st Street and Park Avenue. Now, if you know anything about the history of AA, Grace Church on 21st Street, and I ran over, and here's the church door, okay? And over the church door was a single light. Door was open. It was Christmas Eve, and inside was a group of women who I could just, I could hear their voices, calm, gentle, welcoming. I could hear their voices. So I walked in. I walked in and I said, I didn't have a clue, not a notion about what it was. I knew it was something like AA. I didn't know about that. I knew anything. Nothing about the programs, nothing. No one. Despite the fact that my dad was a doctor, alcoholism was never brought up in my life. No offense, dad. So there it was. And the women said, 
I remember a lady, not well, but a just a warm lady. She said, "Come sit down." And, and I was such a rank newbie. So I did this classic new number, and I walked up to this man, and his name was Charlie. And I said, "Well, how long are you sober? Isn't that the thing you say when you you're new?" And he looked at me. He didn't make fun of me. He didn't look down on me. He took me seriously, and he said kindly. I knew he was kind. I could feel it. He said, "He said the magic words that locked me in for the rest of my life." He said, "Edgar," they say Edgar. He said, six years, the best six years of my life." That was it. The door closed behind me, and stayed closed, and I never looked back. The gentleness of that statement. Locked me in, and in the early days of a, my early days of a, we used to say to each other in the meetings. We don't. I never hear this now. Be careful what you say in an AA meeting. You may be the only big book somebody else has. You never know what you say might save somebody's life, and in such, you're not supposed to know. And Charlie saved my life. I heard he's dead. I could. I never really went back to thank him, but that was it. That was it. Now comes the work. <laughs> I was twenty-six and a half years old. I was a madman. I had two feelings: rage and lust. That's all I had. I was always angry and always horny. I just burnt my way through people, places, and things in this program. I did not know how to not be left. I just was a mess. I was a mess. Still no music. No music. And there I met this incredible man, Jack Porter. He was Irish, six four, in the military, and he used he loved me. He when he used to call me, he called me Tiger. Every meeting he'd meet me, say Tiger, how you doing? I loved it. I was so damaged. It took me two years to read the big book. I could not focus. And he, one time we were down, and he worked in the phone company, right, where all the Irish went. But that's where you work. And you want to hear a funny story? I'm with him down in 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 the financial district, and Jack is six three, and Edgar was five seven. We look like we look like the the Midnight Cowboy with Dustin Hoffman and the other guy. So I'm walking along with him, and a pigeon shit hit my face, right in my face. Damn! And in New York, that's good luck. And you know what Jack did? I'll never forget this. Wrist. I mean, he's dead now. He wiped it off my face with his fingers, and never made a comment. Kept walking. I was shocked that it just—that's what he did. I really loved that guy. We eventually broke up because he just—we wore each other out. I mean, I called him. You know how I used to say in AA, call up three alcoholics each day. I was the kind of guy, the guy that called up three, the same person three times in one day. I was. You see this hand right here? I walked around the program with an umbilical cord, and I would say to him, "Are you my mother? Are you my mother?" I was looking to plug in. I. Desperate to be taken care of. Desperate. 
desperate. I was a poster child for codependency on top of being an alcoholic. So I stayed sober from the love. I stayed sober from the gentleness, the kindness, the love. I cannot tell you people how much that meant to me. Not the literature, not the fourth step, not the slogans, just the endless tolerance of people in those rooms. Because I was a madman. I talked too much. I was always in your face. I was trying to come on anything that was walk, talk, and crawl backwards. I just was, oh, I just was a mess. I was a mess. So Jack took me to his therapist, Dr. Lees, and I spent 20 years in Freudian analysis. And he got me ready for everything in my life that I have now. And I would like to say to this group, hands down, everything I have, see this house, see this music, everything in this house, everything, see me, books, everything, children, I owe to AA. Somebody in AA pointed me in the right direction. And my first sponsor was a Jew, and he was in the Jewish Mafia. <laughs> he taught me more about women than I could ever learn from anyone else. His mother was a Park Avenue prostitute, and she used to put him in the hall while she was turning a trick. He loved me. We used to have sponsorship conversations. You ready for this? Leaning on a mailbox in Gramercy Park. And he would tell, I said, eh, eh, could I have your phone number? And he would go into a rage and he'd say, don't ever give this phone number to anybody. And I would, I said, sure, sure. And he taught me how to rob people, what guns to use. I mean, he was a second story, man. This is a sober criminal. criminal which just goes to show you the program works for everybody, but he loved me. And you know what is the most important thing he did? He came to my apartment and he asked me, how are you doing? I said, oh, I'm studying spiritual literature. Janet was running the lab and working. You know what he said? He said, Edgar, he's really a tough ass dude. He said, Edgar, sobriety is a new pair of shoes. Sobriety is a pair of pants. Get a job. Okay, Howard, I will. And I got a job. I had, I had gotten another job at an ad agency. And there was a thing called, uh, he was in the, uh, the program and he hired me. And I was a mess. I had no machinery to deal with corporations. This guy was a fabulous, famous art director. In fact, they did it, the ad men. And uh, it was that a serious madman? Yeah. He was, he was my boss, that guy. And he was the kind of guy that if he was crazy, he stood at an elevator waiting to go to his suite upstairs and he would punch somebody in the face because they weren't, they weren't fast. He was crazy, but he was a great art director and I became his uh, producer. So I did 150 commercials and finally I walked up to Johnny Shalakis. He was my boss. He was in the program. I said, Johnny, go fuck yourself in his fucking job. I'm walking out. And I walked out. Everybody in the place was plotting. I mean, can you imagine doing that at a corporate job? But he said something that turned my career around as an alcoholic. He called me up one day, he said, Edgar, I didn't fire you. You fired yourself. And I said, okay. And that started me on recovery. So finally, I, Howard, 
to get a job, I went and I found it. And Pat O'Neill, great Irish actor, handsome mother. Woo! Goddamn dropped dead. He, every time he walked into a meeting, six girls would run after him. I mean, he was drop dead gorgeous. He got tuberculosis from drinking, by the way. He died of tuberculosis. He owned a very famous Irish bar called O'Neill's Balloon at Lincoln Center. And he couldn't call it a bar. He had to call it, so they called it O'Neill's Balloon. He had recently hired another Irish bar on 46th Street and 11th Avenue. That was a bar that Budweiser built. I think it was Budweiser. Beautiful bar. They built these bars all across the country. He said, you want a job, Edgar? I said, I flipped out. Pat O'Neill giving Edgar Grant a job? Yes, sir. I thought I was going to be best boy. Oh, yeah, I was going to go around AA. I said, look at me, man. I'm somebody. <laughs> you ready for this? I got a job, all right, O'Neill's at this bar. Landmark Tavern. You know what I was doing? Making Irish soda bread and washing the dishes. How about that, guys? For 40 bucks a weekend. I did it. It was the best job I ever had in my life. I took my 24-hour book. I went into the kitchen. I worked with a black transvestite who would get drunk and run around the kitchen in his underpants, pointing his, gun, his knife at me. He said, I'm going to fuck you, white boy. And a Puerto Rican dishwasher. And I looked at him and I said, I wonder if this is an experience or a slip. You know what I mean? And I stayed sober. And every night, on the weekends, I work weekends, they would pass a, a pitcher of beer back for the staff. I'd go into the dump with my 24-hour book and read it. And that job taught me everything about success in AA. Everything. It taught me whether you're making $40, 4000 or $4 million, you don't drink. You don't drink. I learned everything I had to do in that job. Everything. They were having the beer. I went into the dump. Period. No discussion. And eventually I went and Jack took me to Dr. Lee's. Day, week after week after week after week. Oh my God, guys. Three years. Week after. And I was getting crazy. No, no. First two years. I was, nothing's worse than being sober and bored. It is the pits. You're sober and you don't even know who you are. I hated it, but I didn't drink. So I'm, I'm an East Sider. So if you know anything about AA in New York City, it's very separated. There's West Side AA and East Side. I'm an East Sider. Trafalgar, Rhinelander, Lennox Hill, which is which was uh, Bill Wilson's, uh, her, his wife's meeting for Al-Anon. Uh, Mustard Seed was a famous meeting. It was, in a, it was in a basement. One of the few meetings in Mall of Manhattan that was not in a church. I went every day. I'd walk. I walked 30 blocks up and 30 blocks down. 60 blocks a night to stay sober. I was so damaged. In therapy... Therapy, group therapy, private therapy, 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 therapy. I was a sick cookie. Filled with anxiety and rage. I walked 60 blocks every day 
every day. I walked up to Mustard Seed on East 37th, then I walked, come home, then I walked back up to Trafalgar, back up to Rhinelander in the 70s, and back home. During that time at Trafalgar, Central, well, where was it? Central Sunday night. I think it was Central Sunday night in the 70s. It was this incredibly handsome gay man. He was a culture. You know what that is? He's cultured. Never cursed. Wore a suit and tie. He was sober. And every once in a while, every once in a while, he'd ask me, Edgar, how's your music? And I'd say, I'd almost flip out. How dare you bring this up? So one time, an inner group, but I'll cut this off now. I, I was going out of my mind. I ran over to Intergroup, which was right behind my bedroom door, by the way, 22nd Street. And he was answering the phones. He leaned over a table and he said, how would you like me to get you back to music? And it was a kind of thing that you couldn't say yet. You couldn't say anything else but yes or no. I said, yes. He charged me five bucks. At a, he has a Park Avenue apartment. And I went to study with him. And in three weeks, he threw me out. Get out. You're impossible. Leave. And I went back to my therapist, my rabbi. He says, Edgar, you never finished anything in your life. Ever. I said, you're right. You're right, Dr. Leeds. Oh, did that burn? That session burnt, burnt, burnt. I went back to Mr. Coleman. I apologized for Priestley with a hat in hand. I said, sir. Would you take me back? I am willing to learn. He said, okay. He worked with me for 13 months. He finally got me to understand how to hear A440. I could start to play a scale. I would get up at four in the morning with a tuning fork and hit it on the table. And I would get so, I used to jam it in my ear until blood came out to me. I can't hear anything. Screaming and yelling every night. I learned how to write music primitively. I got my script back. I, I finally got a piano and I could play a C major scale. Oh, it was awful. And he said, Edgar, I can't take you any further. So I just floundered for a while. I studied periodically with a pot smoking jazz art. I said, this is not where I want to be. I went over to Juilliard, a lifelong dream. And I asked the head of the extension division, the third most powerful man at Juilliard, I said, would you take me back? He said, how old are you? I said, I'm 33. He said, there are Koreans here eight years old. Are you ready for this? I said, let's go. I was very humble. Believe me, I learned my lesson. Shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. He took me. He trained me for two years. He charged me 50 bucks a lesson. You know how big $50 was in 1979 in America? This big. Every week I worked with him. I studied and studied and studied. Getting up at four and five in the morning, hitting the music. And then the second, third semester, oh, I would go up to his house on a train. Oh, it was glorious. To Hudson, New York, and to an in-house lesson when he was off. And then he doubled my lessons, $100 a week. I went over to the Jewish bank, Israeli bank, he said, give me some, sure, here's some money. 
<laughs> Pay me back. No free money. Two years they made me audition. Without any guarantee I would get in. Two years. By this time I was 35 years old. I got accepted. I'm the oldest person accepted into Juilliard since the Second World War. And there my career started. I started to write music, some of the greatest artists in America. I did a ballet. I went from peeling potatoes and making Irish soda bread at the Landmark Tavern to walking out on stage at Lincoln Center and taking a bow for a ballet I wrote for one of the greatest choreographers in America, Jose Limon. I, and I wrote it, 16 days. And then I got out of Juilliard and I met the Kurt Vonnegut's daughter and I wrote a mass with Kurt Vonnegut. And then I wrote, uh, one of my students recommended me to Scientific American. Then I wrote the music for the life of Robert Frost. On and on. And then my brother introduced me to Michael Brecker, one of the greatest jazz artists in the world. And I started teach. I taught 27 of the greatest jazz artists in the world. Hands down. I'm on the back. I'm on a, the, the Grammy Award. Don't try this one for Michael Brecker. I taught uh, Michael Stern at All Atlantic Records. I did Joey Calderazzo, Michael's piano player, Jim Golden, on and on and on. In a little dirty studio in West 53rd Street. And the music I did for, with Kurt Vonnegut got recorded on Newport Classic. And it went nowhere. And it ended up in the, on uh, Amazon Top 20 of the indie opera and vocal tour for the entire life of that that record never went off. Sometimes that was two, sometimes that was one. I have the I have the screenshots. So here I am, fifty years later, two kids. I love my grandkids. Still married to the same woman. We're married fifty five, coming up on fifty six years. We're still crazy. We fight all the time. She's been through all of this. She's heard a piece of shit of married to an alcoholic. You can hear. She's got major health problems, which she's overcoming. I didn't run. How about that? Didn't run. I raised my boys. I got a grandchild that I, I just, she just owns me. She owns me. That little girl owns me. So here I am, retired. I teach at the uh, graduate school at School of Visual Arts. I teach music aesthetics to animators and motion graphic artists. Great job. 32 years I've been there. So I have a life for myself. And my boys have jobs. They're both really good. The cat skin operator and the other teaches autistic children. So I have a life. I have a life. I have a life. Anyway, that's the story. As we say in Brooklyn, that's the story, Mark. And I'm sticking by it. Edgar Alcoholic.